This morning, uh, come to the the final week of our sermon series on the church values we're seeking to implement uh, here among us. Uh, we've talked about how we ought to be uh, a family of believers who are uh, united and harmonious in mind and spirit and purpose. Uh, how we cherish life from womb to tomb and, and how that affects what we do, what we value, the individual decisions we make, and the corporate and collective decisions we make. We've talked about uh, sharing, what it looks like uh, for us to, once we understand our position as a family of faith, how to, how to share in a Christ-like and a God-honoring and a selfless way with one another as the church, uh, but also how that changes uh, when we speak about sharing with those outside of the church, that our primary task in doing so is to share the love of Christ. Um, And uh, this week we're going to be talking uh, finally about church planting. So that might be a a new term for you. That may not be something you've heard before. Many of you are familiar with it. But if, uh, if if it is a new term for you, what we're describing in church planting is the process uh, of forming new churches. Uh, it takes this analogy that Jesus speaks about of, of the kingdom being like the, the smallest seed in the garden, the mustard seed, uh, that when it springs up and grows, it becomes the largest tree uh, in which birds and animals find their shelter and their food. And so the church is in many ways something to be uh, planted and that it would grow into uh, a haven for Uh, believers to gather, be exhorted, worship, and and also to provide nourishment from the Lord uh, to those outside of his uh, dominion of faith, so to speak. And so this morning, uh, as as I describe church planting as being a a value that I I hope and pray that we begin to adopt and instill in our lives, I, I realize that it's a bit of an aspirational one. Uh, that we are ourselves just uh, a budding little church plant. Um, you can see that when you look around this morning, or however many of us there are, 10. Um, but there's no time like the present, no time like the beginning of something to prepare for what is right and good. And so I, I want us to begin to understand that that's our future, It may not be our present reality, but it's going to be something that has to be the heartbeat and the lifeblood of what we're aiming to do ultimately. That that everything we've talked about and described before now, these other values, that if we begin to implement them well and understand their scriptural basis and the manifestations of them amongst us, uh, then church planning is going to in many ways be the natural byproduct Uh, of adopting this sort of family mentality, this sharing mentality, a church that's founded on uh, sharing our faith and expressing with joy the good news that Jesus Christ can save sinners amongst whom we are the greatest. Uh, And so this morning I'm going to do just like I've done each of the past few weeks uh, and take a look at the basis for why I believe and I hope you'll see that church planting is a necessity for every church. 
and, and then take a look at some of the visible manifestations. And in, in the previous weeks, that's been a little less straightforward when we talk about the visible manifestations of church planting. Spoiler alert, it's church planting. So we're going to describe what that looks like and what the process uh, is going to be as, as we think about what it means to be a people who cherish and practice planting new churches uh, in the future. And so I want to take two texts this morning, uh, both uh, basically descriptive of the same story. One uh, describes the beginning, and then the second uh, describes the next steps. And those are going to be found in Acts 8, verses 1 through 4, and then Acts 11, verses 19 through 26. So the first passage I want to read this morning, Acts 8, verses 1 through 4. I'll give you just a few seconds to flip with me there. Uh, While you're turning, just to lay a little groundwork, Uh, What's just occurred in Acts 7 uh, is that Stephen (coughs) has um, been arrested, been put on trial, and has been falsely accused uh, and ultimately was put to death and stoned uh, at the hands of the Jewish leadership. And Paul stood there looking on and approving of Stephen's death. And so that's the context that we find ourselves in this morning in Acts chapter 8. When we read in verse 1, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And I want to pause there really quickly and note that the word he uses there, on that day, is probably describing the very same day that Stephen was persecuted on that his persecution inflamed this sort of bitterness towards God's people uh, in all of Jerusalem. And so on the very same day that Jesus was stoned, uh, people who were against, set against the gospel uh, were uh, incited to continue to persecute the church even more severely. And so on the same day, persecution against the church in Jerusalem arose, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now, if you remember from Acts 1, it's almost as if Luke, the author, is trying to point back and say, despite the persecution that's happening, God's plan is still being fulfilled because he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria and in the ends of the earth. So you are already seeing in chapter 8 the gospel spreading beyond Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria despite these circumstances that are less than ideal. And so they spread to those regions except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The passage goes on to record that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So this may seem like an unusual text uh, at first glance to describe church planting. uh, But what I want to take a look at is the natural progression of what occurs when believers are in a place. And the first principle and the first observation that I want to make is that churches form where people of faith live. Because, just like you see in verse 4, disciples share. Christ followers share their faith. Christ followers share the hope they have. You see Paul referring to the the same sort of principle 
that he wants to share wherever he is. In Romans 15, 21, he writes, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So Paul has this uh, very specific ministry call to preach the gospel where it's not already been named. To preach the gospel where the name of Christ is not yet honored and glorified. And so wherever Paul goes, wherever the believers are going, you see this following of them sharing the hope that they have in Christ. And so the next step is what we're going to take a look at in Acts 11, that it moves logically and naturally from once people are saved, once people are brought to faith, then it naturally occurs that they want to gather together and churches are formed. And so I want to turn forward just a couple of chapters to Acts 11 and take a look at verses 19 through 26. And this, uh, again, picks up the story that we're leaving off here in Acts 8, verse 4. So Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, so we're picking right back up, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and when they sent Barnabas, or excuse me, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. And so you'll notice from this passage uh, just a a couple of things occurring, that the Christians who originally were described in Acts 8 uh, as being scattered because of the persecution end up in Judea and Samaria here summarized as the different cities of Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And what they do is they begin to speak and give account of Christ uh, amongst not only the Jews, but also the Greeks. This is God's plan of salvation spoken of uh, before even, uh, excuse me, the New Testament was written. You you see glimmers of this that uh, the Gentiles would be engrafted into God's family. And so uh, we're coming to a period of fulfillment here uh, in these verses. And so as these men and women are scattered, they give an account of Christ in the communities that they settle in. And then because of the power of the word of God, some are converted. Some come to faith. And so the leaders of the Jerusalem church hear about uh, these new converts and send their own leaders to try and build up and exhort the other believers. And it says in verse 26 that for a whole year they met with whom? The church that had formed in Antioch. They met with the church. And so the natural progression is, is that when people come to faith... They gather in churches. (coughs) 
And there is uh, there are a variety of reasons uh, why that occurs. You, you see in verse 26 that they're first and foremost gathering to learn more about the gospel. I mean, these aren't necessarily people who have... Uh, a historical background, a historical understanding uh, of the things of the Lord. It says, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. They just didn't know about the Lord the way maybe the, the Jewish believers, the Jewish converts would have. They didn't have the scriptures. They didn't have the synagogues. They didn't have access to uh, the accounts and the testimonies of who God was in the same way. And so they gather to learn more about who God is. But they don't just gather to learn because... What do we learn in 1 Corinthians? Paul writes that knowledge alone puffs up. They're not just gathering to learn. It's not an academic pursuit. They're not going to school. They're going to church. They're going to church and gathering together to exhort one another and be exhorted. You see that in verse 23, that when Barnabas came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful. That exhort word is a a bit of a a biblical word, and basically what we're describing in exhortation that occurs in our churches is both the stirring up of affections and our joy uh, in the Lord that would result in us walking in the works that he's called us to. And so we're exhorting one another, and we're being exhorted. We're submitting ourselves to understanding that every one of us has a responsibility to exhort one another, and by the same token, be exhorted to have our affections for the Lord stirred up so that we might walk in his ways. And so the first observation about uh, this progression is that churches form where people of faith live. The second thing I want to note uh, is, is that you see from this passage a principle of multiplication rather than addition. It's a, it's a bit jargony in our day and age. But what we mean by that is that the goal is, is not a musical chairs game. We're not just trying to shuffle believers from church to church to church. Instead, we're doing like these early Christians were. And wherever we find ourselves with the people that we find ourselves in relationship with, we're sharing. We're letting the word do its power. And praying for new converts to be made, people to come to faith in Christ, to turn away from their sin, and to be made new and right before God. Mm-hmm. And so the goal is always new converts. The goal is not just moving people from church to church to church to church. Because then we just end up in this vicious cycle of a numbers game. Uh, that's been a a statistic that for a long time we've relied on. And and it's not a wholly misled one. It's good to see people in churches. You want to see church attendance growing uh, and booming and and being added to. But the fact of the matter is it can ignore some of the variables about why people are coming to church. And just as I made reference to, they might just be coming from other churches. And so the kingdom isn't being expanded. Because that's ultimately the goal, is that the kingdom would grow. Mm -hmm. That it's not just about us staking a claim on our little piece of land, our little church. That we have a bigger picture in mind and that it's God's kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, would be expanded and would grow. 
And so that might lead us then to think that, that baptisms are, are a better metric for how we might gauge. And again, that's getting closer to approximating the kind of, uh, of uh, numbers we want to see and, uh, and evaluate uh, because it's good to see people come into a church. But uh, just to, to demonstrate how, again, that can too be misleading, the, the denomination that we're a part of, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, had, took a look at the past 20 years uh, of church attendance, of church growth, uh, and quite a few different metrics and variables and saw that over the past 20 years, from 1997 to 2017, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention baptized 7 million people. And so that number alone is just staggering. It's an amazing number to hear. But then by the same token, we also looked at the numbers and saw that a little over 7 million people left the church. That in other words, there was a net loss of 20,000 people when push comes to shove. When we have baptized 7 million, but we lost 7 million 20,000. So it doesn't matter what kind of numbers game you want to play. Numbers can always be misleading. So I don't want us to exclusively and solely focus on what it means to become a a bigger or healthier church by how many people are filling chairs. I don't want us to exclusively become focused on what it means to be a healthy church as we consider the amount of baptisms we begin to have uh, amongst us because, again, all of those numbers can mislead us. And And baptism is a good thing, but it's also just the beginning. It's the beginning of the Christian walk. That we're called to lifelong discipleship. And, and there's very little measuring we can do to gauge what lifelong discipleship and lifelong engaging with Jesus and his church looks like. And so we can't become so focused on numbers as we think about growing our church and planting new ones that we lose the forest for the trees. That's why evangelism has to be the bedrock that we're founded on. Because if we are just founded on getting more people, we have this tendency uh, to speak only to church people. That we have this way of speaking our church language that church people understand well, uh, but that is completely foreign and lost on people who are outside of the family of faith. And so my prayer is that we would understand what it means to engage with friends and family members and neighbors who don't know the Lord and begin to share. Because the way we invite people in is the way we keep them. And so my prayer is that we would invite them in through uh, the sharing of our faith and not by the programs we have, not by uh, a glamorous slideshow, an amazing band, whatever it is pray that we would draw them in because they see the supernatural power of God working amongst a weak group of people as his word is held up on a pedestal and as we share and give bold proclamation to the fact that he's changed our lives. The third observation from this passage uh, that I want to make comes back in chapter 8. You'll notice as you skim forward a little, a little ways, you see in verse 8 what occurred. 
that in spite of the persecution, in spite of the fact that these Christians were uh, dispersed from their homes, they were kicked out, they had to leave everything they knew behind, verse 8 says, So there was much joy in that city. The third observation I want to make is that we have to be, that there are numerous commands, countless commands in Scripture that we would delight in and take joy in the gospel. And that doesn't blanch out the fact that there are circumstances that are difficult and hard and would drive us away from earthly happiness. But you can see from this passage that joy is always an option for those even who are walking through difficult times. They left everything. They were kicked out of their homes. They didn't have their same family members. They didn't have their same friends. They didn't have their same stuff. Those are tremendous and significant losses. And yet, verse 8 says, there was much joy in that city. And when we begin to understand the gospel, when the light of the gospel shines in our hearts, there is joy. And converts are made when followers are delighting for three reasons. Because first and foremost, joy is a catalyst for our sharing. That if we're not joyful in who God is, if we're not joyful in what Christ has done for us, then our sharing just becomes uh, a demand, a burden, a duty. But when there's joy and delight in your life because of what Christ has done, joy is catalytic and it gets you going. It gets you started on the process of doing as Christ calls us to, to give an account Because ultimately, we all talk about what we love, right? I um, can't describe to you the amount of frustration I would feel at times uh, when we lived back in Mississippi and walking into a a given Sunday school room on a Sunday morning during the fall and hearing conversations revolving exclusively around how everyone's favorite college football team did, rather than what Christ has done for people, rather than who God is. And look, there, were, there was a time when that's all I was interested in talking about. And that's not to pat myself on the back because I, I, I didn't do anything to change that. The Lord changed my heart. And the Lord can change all of our hearts. The Lord can change all of our affections. But the, the fact of the matter is we talk about what we love. We talk about the things that are important to us. If you have kids, you talk about your kids because you love your kids. If you're married... You talk about your spouse because you love your spouse. Week in and week out, I find it hard not to make every analogy I want to make, every illustration I want to make about how I've seen the Lord work in our marriage. I can't do that because you get tired and Olivia would get burned out and she would uh, not like our whole life, our lives being spilled out onto a a canvas. Uh, But the fact of the matter is you talk about what you love. And if the gospel, if Christ is the apple of your eye, the thing, the person you desire most, then you're going to talk about Christ. And that sort of joy is also infectious. In other words, it lends some credibility to what you're saying. Because just like people can spot a faker, 
people can also spot someone who's being authentic. People can tell when it means a lot to you. When what you're describing is the most important reality in your life. And finally, joy is what carries you through difficult times. You see that in Acts 8, 3 through 4. As Saul was ravaging the church and entering house to house to house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And verse 4 stands in such stark contrast to the realities of verse 3. That those who were scattered because of the persecution that Paul was bringing about on the church, they went about preaching the word. They went about doing the exact same thing that got them into trouble in the first place. Joy in the gospel is what carries you through the difficult times. Mm -hmm. It keeps your eyes above the momentary tumult and chaos of your circumstances. So I hope you understand that church planting is the natural byproduct of us being wherever we are. If you're a believer, then your faith is shared. And if your faith is shared, then the gospel accomplishes its purposes. And people are born again and snatched out of darkness and into light. And as that occurs, people join churches or form churches. So I want to move on beyond just the basis for why we church plant to some of the visible manifestations of why we plant churches and how we plant churches. The first manifestation I want to describe is that we actually plant. I described earlier that church planting for us right now in this moment is is an aspirational, forward-looking reality. Uh, We don't have the people, the resources, the, the ability any of the tools and equipment, hardly, that we need to be able to start a church. And that's, that's okay. But we can't just talk about it now, and then when we get down the road in five years, have forgotten what we described as being of utmost importance. That the gospel would be preached and new churches would be formed. So what does this look like five years from now? Well, my prayer is that we're actually beginning to plant new churches. And there's a phrase that I've mentioned a couple of times that has made a profound impact on my life. We do that. We plant churches in two ways, both across the street and around the world. What I mean by across the street is that we're considering what it means to engage people with the gospel and start new churches in our area. Here in White Rock, I mean, we're describing a community in White Rock and South Surrey that can sustain far more churches than what we have. The facts of the greater Vancouver area are that there's only about 3% of the population who could be described as evangelical. And what I mean by evangelical is not a a right-leaning conservative Christian. But there's a a professor here in town at uh, Regent Seminary, who I, I thought gave a good definition of what it means to be evangelical. He wrote this. Evangelicals have been centrally concerned with what it means to discover a personally meaningful relationship with Christ through conversion. 
The Bible has been central to their lives as not only a supreme authority for belief and practice, but also the object of their affection and instrument of their devotion. Christ's cross has had an exalted place in evangelical worship, central to preaching of a Christ who suffered and died for me, for us, as the means of conversion and source of gratitude. And finally, assurance of sins forgiven has produced confidence and energy for Christian mission that has propelled evangelicals to the farthest reaches and darkest corners of the world in service of Christ. So just a a few salient points to summarize what was said there. Uh, Someone who's evangelical is a someone who understands what it means to experience a conversion in a personal sense, that they hold to the Bible's authority in their lives and for the life of the church, and that they have a robust theology and understanding of Jesus' substitution for sinners on the cross, his subsequent resurrection, and the endowment of his mission to create and make more disciples. And so when we describe the dire situation of our area, the across the street area, we're saying that the numbers play out that only 3% of Vancouver would agree with that statement. 3%. Missions agencies would almost describe that as unreached. Typically, the cutoff is around 2%. We, we live in an area that is almost classified as unreached. There is great need for the gospel across the street. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but there's also great need for the gospel all around the world. I mean, it, it doesn't take long to look at stories and accounts uh, of people and places that have never heard the name of the Lord. I mean, many of you have been to places all over the world, to India, Nepal, to places in Africa, to places in Asia and Southeast Asia and Eastern Asia that have virtually no Christian belief and perhaps even less Christian influence and testimony. There are virtually no believers and many of these places around the world. And so when we describe what it means to actually plant churches, we're thinking about planting both across the street and around the world. And we go around the world because God's love for the lost is therefore our love for the lost. And a lot of times when we think about the the around-the-world people, what we see is a people destitute and in poverty. And so in some sense, it definitely includes the alleviation of hardship when we're engaging with people uh, all over the world. But it's ultimately for the rescue of souls. That's why Luke says that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Not that the Son of Man came to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and provide social justice for the outcast. He did do those things. But his primary objective was to seek and to save the lost. 
when we flip one over the other, when we put need-based ministry above the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel, we're confusing the benefits of proximity with Christ with the mission itself. The mission is always to preach the gospel. But God does care for the widow, the orphan, the outcast, the refugee, the alien. But we always have to understand that need-based ministry is a means to an end. That what, is it, what does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and, let, and yet loses his soul? If we snatch him out of poverty and yet he knows nothing of Christ? Mm-hmm. We've only made his road to hell easier and more comfortable. The second thing about church planting is that we plant often. We both actually plant and we plant often. And and I realize often is a bit of a subjective measuring stick. And and that's something that over time I, I pray the Lord provides some enfleshment and clarity to. But the fact of the matter is, when we begin to wait too long to plant new churches, we begin to experience our church in a sense of ownership rather than stewardship. Our people become our people rather than people in the service of the kingdom. Our stuff becomes our stuff rather than stuff to be used in the service of Christ. When we wait too long, we get selfish rather than selfless. We become owners rather than stewards. And so if we know that it's God's will to make himself known through churches and to be glorified through churches, then we are always having to ask ourselves, where next? Where can we start new churches next? And that involves both a personal and congregational aspect. That every one of us has to be intensely focused on what God is saying to us about his mission in the world. Am I someone that you might use, Lord, to begin a new church? Or Father, provide some clarity in our fellowship of believers about where you would want us to plant next. To start a new church next. Are there places where Christ is not yet named? Of course there are. Mm. But Lord, put these things on our heart. Thirdly and lastly, not only do we actually plant, not only do we plant often, but we plant from evangelism and not for it. Uh, One of the, the vice presidents of... Uh, this uh, of the North American Mission Board of their church planting wing um, wrote this about church planting. When churches are planted for evangelism, they often find themselves culturally mismatched and fail to gain an indigenous foothold. When churches are started from evangelism, from evangelism, They seem instinctively to know how to move forward with great credibility in a sea of networks and relationships. So three points that I want to just highlight from that passage. Uh, That he writes, there's a difference between 
being a church plant from evangelism and being a church plant for evangelism. If you're a church plant for evangelism, what he's describing is that we're being evangelistic, we're sharing our faith just for the sake of sharing our faith. So we feel better about fulfilling our obligation to share our faith. And that often it doesn't consider the context in which it finds ourselves. That's why he writes, they often find churches that are planted for evangelism, they often find themselves culturally mismatched and fail to gain an indigenous foothold. It, it doesn't consider how to explain and express the gospel in cultural terms that would ease understanding and help people understand without sacrificing the gospel itself. On the other hand, churches that are founded from evangelism are churches that have evangelism at their foundation and at their basis. Again, I already mentioned that the way you bring people in is the way you keep people. And so it seems just like uh, Christofferson, the the author that I read here, wrote, uh, it, it seems as if churches who are founded from evangelism instinctively know how to move forward from the moment they begin. And so that, that's not exactly where we are. We weren't a church that was necessarily founded on evangelism. I got sent up here, and you guys were already here, and so we began a church because... You were a group of people without a, a church home. And that's not in any way putting down or disparaging God's design for this church. That's great. But it means we have a lot of work to do to understand what it means to be a church that's founded from evangelism. That that is the core of our identity. He also wrote in that second point that I want to highlight Uh, that churches instinctively move forward when they're founded from evangelism. They instinctively move forward. Uh, What he's trying to express is that we, uh, we get the mission. We understand what the whole point of the kingdom is. We understand the whole point of our lives is to seek and save the lost, just like Jesus' mission was. We understand the whole purpose of why we exist as a church is to make disciples and to ourselves become more like Christ. And then lastly, he says that they're able to do that in a sea of networks and relationships. So in churches that are founded from evangelism versus for evangelism, churches that are founded for evangelism are are almost like trying to, to force relationships versus utilizing relationships. When you throw a church into a community where there are no relationships already, you're trying to build something that wasn't previously there. Whereas if you're a group of Christians who are indigenous, who are from the place where you live, then you already have a sea of networks and relationships. I love that phrasing. That you can navigate and swim through and begin to share. So as we put an end to series on church values. I I hope that in the coming weeks you will continue to process through uh, these five things that we've described. And I'll I'll put this information in front of you because it's going to be important for us going forward. Um, I wrote that uh, these are the things that define not only um, 
the way we carry out our mission as a church, but also the way we walk as individual believers. That the mission of our congregation becomes your own mission. That you would internalize what it means to be a good family member to the person sitting in the chair next to you, or in front of you, or behind you. That you would consider weightily what it means to share sacrificially of your time, your energy, your resources with one another, and then also of yourself with those who don't know Christ. Uh, That you would be a person who utilizes God's regular means of grace in the form of these personal disciplines, that you would be a person of the Word, that you would study and memorize and engage with the Scriptures, that you would be a person of prayer, that you would cherish life from its beginning to its end, and that lastly, we would have a long-distance view of what it means to sometime in the future be a church that plants other churches. And so I hope that, and I pray that, each one of us will begin to cherish these things so that we begin to do these things. Let's pray.